The primary passage that we're going to look at this morning is Matthew 13. But I want to ask a question to begin with. And I have a feeling that most of you will know the answer. Not like the other day when I did the music quiz. So the question is this. Where does a farmer normally sow his seed? And we're not, we're not talking metaphorically or anything that we're talking about, you know, wheat or something like that. Where does a farmer normally sow his seed? <laughs> Pretty good. So here we go. Matthew 13. And this morning, we're not going to be very complicated. I just want to highlight something. Matthew 13 from verse 24 to 30, and then we'll read a bit further. Jesus gave them another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat. It's, it's a particular word in Greek, apparently, that is uh, like it's a wheat like weed that looks like wheat okay apparently and it, they sowed these seeds among the wheat and went away and when the wheat sprang up and bore grain these weeds became evident also and the slaves of the landowner came to him and said sir didn't we sow good seed in your field how then do we have weeds and he said to them an enemy has done this, and the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while gathering up the weeds, you root up the weed, wheat with them. Allow both the wheat and the weeds to grow until the harvest. And we'll say to the reapers, First gather the weeds, bind them in bundles, burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then from verse 36, after all, the, he's, he, he's told them a couple of other parables about uh, the kingdom. And then in verse 36, when all the crowds had left the house, his disciples came to him. And so often with parables, they said to him, you'd better explain this to us. What is this thing about the weeds and the field? And he answered and said to them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is at the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. And so he carries on to verse 42, 43. And he explains the parable to them. So the question is, where does a good farmer generally sow his seed? And the answer is, as you see all around you, as you're driving around, in the field. So this morning, I really just have a very simple thesis, a simple thing that I want to say. Jesus says categorically in verse 38 here, the field is the world. 
The field is the world. And I'm asking, where ought we, as the farmers, as the children of God, where ought we to be sowing our seed? In the field. And the field is the world. And the reason for saying this is that to a large extent, the Western church and the church that we've most of us grown up in or seen or been part of for some of us for most of our lives now has been dominated to a large extent over the last 20, 30 years by a model of church that is more like a business than it is like the kingdom. And I don't want to focus on the negative aspects of things this morning, but we have made the church the field. That's where we expend nearly all of our energy. That's where we plant just about all of our seeds. And I want to say this morning, with great simplicity, but with clarity, hopefully, that the world is the field and that we ought to be planting our seed in the world. And if we have a choice between what the church looks like, we, we don't want to make the church the field. We want to make the church, who is, who is us, the force. We want to be a presence in the world, wherever we are, at home, at work, at school, wherever we happen to be. And we've talked about this over an extended period of time, how we want to be incarnational. Like Jesus came and he was in heaven. There were choirs, there were angels, there was worship, there was all kinds of stuff going on. It was comfortable. And if you read Philippians 2, it says that he had to humble himself. He lowered himself to become like you and I. Now, we're not going to go into all the detail, but basically, he comes, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit, and now he says to you and I, you're it. You are now the incarnation. I am the incarnation of Jesus. I am now the one who is sowing seed wherever I go. The world in which we live in is hostile to the church. If you look at pretty much any TV program that you want to these days, there are uh, values and stuff that is going on in those programs that is the antithesis of the gospel of the kingdom. Whether, whether, you, whether you're at work or at school or wherever you happen to be, the dominant culture that we live in is no longer a so-called Christian culture. It was a misnomer anyway, but the point is that there was a baseline understanding of certain values of rightness and goodness and truth that were associated with the gospel that had permeated the, the culture. The result, the, the reason that that had happened was because of the Reformation, because of people like Wesley and Whitfield and Men and women who over the years had sowed their seed broadly amongst the society. They infected the world with their goodness. And I, I think at the moment I detect a sense in which 
the church is almost stepping back and saying, we'll keep all of this out. And Jesus says to his disciples, not that we are going to sort of become a little holy huddle where we'll just keep out all this darkness that descends. He says to us, you are the light of the world. And in Matthew 5, in verse 13 to 16, he says to them, you are salt and you are light. And the salt is useless unless, unless it gets out the salt shaker and you sprinkle it over all the corruption. The light is useless if you light it and you stick a bucket over it. No one can see a thing. But if you light just a small match in a totally darkened room, it's incredible how much light it actually gives. A single candle, a single testament to, to goodness or kindness or truth. Honesty, big, good place to start. We are caricatured in the media and in society. If you ask people who've never been to church, what does the church look like? They will describe something that they've vaguely heard through all the different things that have filtered through to them. And it won't look like what we want them to see. How on earth, Paul says, are people going to hear the good news unless someone tells them? I've been asked ad nauseum over, over the years that I've been in the church. So, and this is like a really big question. So, what is your vision? And most of the time, what they're expecting is for me to say something like this. We want to take Bishop Stortford for Jesus. Or we want to see 200 people in this church by the end of next year. Noble goals. But those are business goals more than they are kingdom goals. You see, when, when, the, church is, when the church becomes the place in which we do all of these things, then we want to haul everybody in here, have a whole lot of programs, and a nice, neat-looking place where there's no raggedy edges, where there's no funny-looking people. Where it's not messy. And we want them to see what a great church we have. The music is all sorted, and the worship is brilliant, and the preaching is exceptional, and you welcomed, and the tea is brilliant. And everything is just like slick. It's top-notch. That's not how I see the church, unfortunately. Paul writes to the Ephesian church and he says, in the, at the end of this massive sentence that he writes in the beginning of chapter one, he, he, he sort of starts winding it up. And he says, all this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep, deep heaven. In charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name, no power, exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. 
Then he says this, he is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of all of this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he, is, he fills everything with his presence. That's the message. It is probably the most accurate, clear rendition of that last section of Paul's sentence where he's saying the church is not peripheral. The church is at the core, at the center. Why? Because this is Christ's body. We are a holy people. And at the center of everything is the light that emanates from us, who are little Christs, if you like, into the world. You want to know what my vision is? My vision is this, that we will be a church who are loving unconditionally everybody that we meet. That we are a church who is able to accept whoever walks in that door, whoever walks into our lives without judgment. The North American Indians have a saying, you never judge a man until you've walked two months in his moccasins or two weeks or whatever it is. You do not know what lies behind the facade of the people that you see. And forgiveness. If we can be a people who are unconditionally loving those around us, who are able to accept and embrace the broken humanity that crosses our path and forgive not only ourselves, but those who are constantly going to tread on our toes. We don't run at the first sign of there being a little bit of friction. As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, the proverb says. And the reason is that in our current culture, what we do is we, we get the first spark and we're gone. We never grow up. My vision for the church, we've got on the banner outside there, Real life, real community, real mission. And let's just be honest, it's aspirational. But that's what I would want to see. The church as a presence in our family. That my light shines with my children, my grandchildren, with Gail. With my aunts and uncles and nephews and cousins that my light shines when I walk into a shop, that I'm not the grumpy old man who complains about everything. And even if I am complaining, that I do it in such a way. I want my life to shine. I want to be salt. I want to be an unconditional loving presence in a world that's crying out for it. I remember years and years ago, a woman coming to the house and banging on the door at about half past nine at night. And she was marginally part of the church. And we let her in. She came into my study and she, she, she left. And as she was leaving, much later, she said to me, 
like a parting shot. All I want is to be loved. It sums up just about practically every human being. All we want is to be loved. And what we can say to every person we come across is, you know what? I might be doing a shabby job of loving you, but I know God loves you unconditionally because he loves me unconditionally. And I'm trying to love unconditionally. If I have a vision for the church, it's this, that we are a force, a presence in the world of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Full stop. Buildings, programs, worship teams, children's church, all these things. Yes, there is a place for organization and management and all that sort of stuff. But we have leaned so heavily on the side that we expend all of our energy to keep the wheels of the church going. We have misunderstood that I am the church, that you are the church. And the place for the church is actually in the field, sowing seeds. Because that's what the farmer has given us. He's given us a bag of seeds and he says, go and spread it liberally around. I've got two books in my bag that I'm busy reading at the moment. And they're by well-acknowledged men who are the ones a composite book of about 15, 16 authors from a wide spectrum looking at different aspects of the church and how, how we respond to what's happened in the pandemic and the future of the church, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what's interesting is that I had to put them away a little bit. I got them a month or two ago because I find myself getting kind of a cloud descending over me. Because if you start looking at the world that we're living in with artificial intelligence, and the fact that the Gulf Stream might switch and the whole planetary weather system might go upside down and what that will do to farming. And, 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 and I just said, okay, I need to take a break. I need to put this aside and restore my soul. And you know what's at the heart of it is this. God is good. And God has not changed. God is still active. He's still busy. The Spirit of God is at work in every single person that you bump into every single day. The mission that God gave us has not changed. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and grab people and bring them to church and let Chris sort them out and make sure that they get saved. He said, go and make disciples. Now, that might look like a stumbling thing. You might be giving them a book to read or saying, oh, I struggled with that as well. Let's see if we can find out what that looks like. And walking together with somebody. I have a vision for the church, and this is what it looks like. That's for the church generally. We are not in competition with the church that's meeting at, meeting at Birchwood or any other church in Stortford. That's not our competition. Our competition is every other use of people's time. 
because they are so busy with all sorts of other things. Their lives are so crammed with rubbish. But everyone needs to be loved. Everyone needs to know forgiveness. Everyone needs to feel unconditionally embraced and accepted. And so my vision for the church is, is simply that. It's Jesus who builds the church. I just want to end with, um, yeah, I've got to let Brenda know when I'm, I'm about ending. Acts chapter 2, I mean, how many times do we read it? And these were people who had experienced Jesus and responded to the Spirit of God. It says they were continually devoting themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. They kept feeling a sense of awe. There were signs and wonders. They were together. They had things in common. They sold their property. They shared with people. They were breaking bread from house to house. They had meals together with gladness. They were praising God. There's a great celebration going on. There's a great sense of, of, of internal energy. And as they were doing all of these things, it says in verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to love people, to tell them the good news, how we have been set free, what God has done for us. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be um, uh, erudite. You don't have to be anything except yourself. You don't have to have any other story except your story. And God does the work. He's the one who is busy building the church. It's his church. It's his body. He loves it more than you do. The church isn't essentially a place, a building, a program, an organization. It can get to be all those things. It's essentially a bunch of relationships that we have with God, our Savior, that we have with each other. And then God says, you know what? I'm going to give you as a gift to that part of the world. And you, I'm going to give as a gift to that part of the world. And you, I'm going to give a gift to that part of the world. And if we could just have a little picture of what God has as a picture, here's the thing. If we could sort of do a sort of an, uh, what's it, a top-down elevation picture, and each Christian, each one in this church and the community church and the Baptist church, and each one of us were just a single pinpoint of light on the map, on a Google map, and you would see all of these lights moving around on a Sunday and moving together. And they come together for fellowship and worship. And they come together to experience the unity of being the family and the body of Christ and being brought together in that sense. And then they all move off. And they're sort of not moving so much on Sunday. But then on Monday morning, you just see this. Whoosh, and suddenly, 
places where there was complete darkness, where there was no light at all, in that particular office in London on the fourth floor of the Shard, suddenly there's three lights in there. And if each one of us were conscious of the fact that that's the power of being the body of Christ, that's my vision for the church. Now, I confess straight off, I'm not great at organization. Ask Randall or Suzanne or Jackman, they're the trustees. I'm very grateful that we've got really organized people who are on the trustees or other guys in the church who are leading different things. I'm not great at organizing things. And there are people who are, and we'll get those gifts are all part of the church. But the point is this. We all have to give whatever we've got wholeheartedly to each other and to the world. Now, there's a hundred other things that I could say. Inga, would you just go and tell Brenda that I'm almost finished? Thanks. There's a hundred other things that I could say about the church. But that's my vision for the church. That's my vision for the church. I long to see us as a people who, whose presence in our society is one of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Yes, the gifts of the Spirit are there in terms of praying for healing, praying for all sorts of things. But in essence, that's it. And so the question I asked right at the beginning was this, was, where does the farmer plant his grain, his seed? He plants it in a field. Where has God planted you? The disciples come to Jesus after the crowd has left and he says, and they say, explain the parable of the weeds in the field. And Jesus says, the field is the world. 